You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast with your host, Jonathan Robinson-Lees. Welcome to the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Today, we sit down with Paul Thompson, a local rock climber, philosopher and writer. Frothy, as he's affectionately known in climbing circles, is a well-renowned new route setter in the Blue Mountains, developing iconic climbs for the community. Immersing himself into the sport, rock climbing has also been an escape for Paul. It has provided solace during times of adversity in his life. Having given so much time and passion to the local rock climbing community, it was no surprise that in a time of need, Paul was met with an outpouring of support. He credits his shift in perspective and resilience to those within the climbing fraternity. Please enjoy this episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Paul, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Thanks very much, mate. Uh, good to be here. It should be fun. Paul, you're known as one of the most renowned new route developers of rock climbs in the Blue Mountains. What is it about setting new paths that you love? It's almost like an art form in a way. It's like seeing something... Um, you know, it might be a blank, imposing cliff. Sometimes it's hard to get to. And it's about trying to imagine a way of climbing up it because obviously there's a fine line between what's possible and what's not possible. And sometimes just trying to envision a route which you can take up this particular piece of cliff and trying to, like, you know, you'll go out there and you investigate it and you'll, you'll fail as often as you'll succeed and there's lots of things which look possible but then aren't but then maybe you find a different path or maybe you give up or maybe you tell someone else about it who's more capable than you are. And just being a part of that process is kind of like, it's this interesting like art meets engineering project almost. Um, you know, sometimes it can take, you know, months and months and months of work. I've got a, a climb down in Tasmania I've been working on for literally five years. You know, I may never succeed at it, but I keep coming back because I believe I can. And, you know, it's just a canvas waiting there to be uh, painted on really. And do you find yourself more motivated the harder it is or the more obscure it is? Is that a challenge for you that you like to overcome? I think both are definitely selling points. Um, we have some amazing climbing talent in the Blue Mountains and in Australia as a whole. And the reality is that, like, for me, I'm, I'm not a proper top-end climber. I think I'm fairly competitive. So for me, knowing I won't be able to kind of perform at that top level, I have to find my challenges elsewhere. And I've definitely found it in, like, Climbing hard relative to my limit, trying difficult things relative to my limit, but also trying to do it in the most out there, outrageous, inaccessible places. Um, and, you know, it also means that my, my routes, my climbing routes don't tend to be very popular, but I feel that those that do come and repeat them or attempt to repeat them, like not only do they get the same experience I've had, but maybe they get a little bit of insight into me as a person. So it's almost like leaving behind like a, a calling card, so to speak, on the side of the cliff, you know. And do you think, is there a bit of a reflection or a personal touch? The, the, the roots that you set, are they kind of trademark Paul Thompson or do you think they kind of get mixed in with other people's? I think, I mean, there's always a few roots which maybe get lost in the grand scheme of things. But one thing you do learn as a climber, especially one who's been around for a long time, is you come to recognise people's kind of style you know what i mean they're sort of flourish the way they equip roots their approach what route it might be 
because climbing can encompass everything from essentially a steep hill right through to a big overhanging upside down roof, which is very gymnastic. And different people tend to sort of gravitate towards different things and their locations and the effort involved. Um, like for me, for example, there's a bit of a running joke that all of my routes are very involved. There's a lot of effort to get there, long approaches, abseils, hanging out on ledges, um, all just for the sake of a, an arbitrary climb. And, you know, maybe that's, that's my little signature, so to speak, my little trademark, but other people have their own as well. And it's kind of, when you look at the first ascensionist, it's often you can kind of get, sort of get a bit of a vibe for what the route's going to be like. And, you know, you might even seek out certain ones. Like I've certainly got certain um, other new routers whose climbs I specifically like to seek out because I know they're going to reflect the things I like to do as well. Like we'll have a similar interest or maybe sometimes I feel like doing something which doesn't suit me and I'll pick someone who has the exact opposite interest of me because I kind of know their route's going to challenge me in a whole different way and in reality probably humble me quite a bit. And do you tend to seek out those kind of big adventure climbs or are drawn to the, you know, the, the sport crags, you know, the, the, those grade crushes as they refer to them? <laughs> probably, look, it's kind of a balance of the two. I found when I started climbing and especially early on when I kind of realised that I'm not as natural a climber as some of the people I, was, I started off with, I used to get really angry that I couldn't perform at the same level they could, that I'm not this top-end climber, that I work so hard and just don't quite get there. And I've sort of found over the years that a balance is what is best. Like I often say I like to have what we call a project day, which is where you're working on a particular climb you haven't yet succeeded on and usually is, is very hard. And maybe it's at a sport crag, sport climbing area, or maybe it's somewhere a little bit more obscure, but something that really challenges you. Um, and then I often like to have a day where I'm just, it's just like a whatever day. Like maybe I'm just a support crew for a friend. Maybe I'm having an adventure. Maybe I'm trying to find an unrepeated climb, which, you know, may not necessarily be super hard, but it may be unrepeated for a reason. Maybe it's hard to get to. Maybe it's a bit dangerous. Maybe it's just weird, you know, and, and that's a different type of satisfaction. And again, that, that humble feeling, like, you know, you walk away feeling small and insignificant, but that is, is kind of cool, really. How do you go about balancing the respect, I guess, for the tradition of the sport of rock climbing, but also wanting to break new ground? Are there certain kind of unwritten laws that you need to, to follow when you are setting a new route? It's tricky. Um, and it's one of the more contentious issues in climbing, not, not just here, but around the world. Um, I feel like I try to walk a balance between the two because I'll, I'll be honest, I love actually this afternoon, I'm going to go um, after we have this interview, after I finish work, we're going to go um, up to a sport climbing area at Blackheath and just spend an afternoon climbing short, hard routes. But, you know, as much as I love doing that, literally this coming Tuesday, I'm going to go and try and help a friend free a big, unfree traditional roof crack, a big upside down roof, which has never been done before. And I love, I love both worlds of it, but it's really tricky walking that line. And obviously some people gravitate towards one style or the other style. And I mean, as with everything, you know, if you want to advance a sport or you want to try and like leave your mark, find your own part of the rock, sometimes things happen in terms of, you know, the, the, the conflict of styles, the clash of tradition and performance. These things do occur and there have been some hostilities in the community as a result of that. And, and that also then kind of filters down to our relationship between like Blue Mountains Council and also um, Blue Mountains National Parks, because, you know, we walk a bit of a line with them as well. And, and having said that, they've been very accommodating. Both, both have actually um, only a couple of months ago, I was in a meeting with Blue Mountains National Parks about the next plan of management they're working on and just trying to 
like I guess discuss with them their concerns, our concerns, how climbing and other adventure sports can fit into the future of the Blue Mountains and, and legally do it. So there's again, there's a walk in that balance is key to maintain that relationship as well. So the original question was, you know, is there some sort of like code of ethics within the community? I'd say look, there, there is not a hard and fast set of ethics, it's not exactly codified. Um, and people will argue, you know, the semantics of it, but I think there is kind of a generally accepted set of ethics and um, the actual climbing access group, which is um, ACAN, um, Australian Climbers Access New South Wales, um, that I belong to, we work as essentially advocates to try and maintain, I suppose, or, or lobbyist group, you might even say, to maintain climbing access, but also to mitigate any issues that may occur or before they crop up. And, you know, something that Parks has expressed to us is this idea of kind of creating a more formalised code for, of, of management moving forward so that, you know, we don't have issues with them, other people, because obviously lots of people, as you would know, use the Blue Mountains and, and explore and find these amazing places. And they don't want to rock up at this beautiful untouched bit of cliff and find it covered with bolts or, or something like that. You know, it should be subtle. It shouldn't impinge on other users' experiences. And, you know, that's something that parks and council have to factor in, which in turn means that that's something that we have to factor in as well as climbers, as the access group for climbers, because otherwise we may not be able to climb. And all of that to me comes back to exactly your question about the balance between performance, sport climbing, equipping. Um, another term we sometimes use is kind of like um, sanitizing. By that, we mean making things safe and well protected and cozy. You know, can you carry your latte down to the crag? Um, and the other end of the spectrum, which is that kind of sort of leave no trace type of vibe, climbing on traditional gear, maybe minimizing the use of chalk or brushing it off after you're finished, which is a, another big thing. Yeah, with, with this view to maintaining relationships for everyone, including within the community. Taking it back a step and looking at the, the new routes that you're setting, for, for people like myself who, you know, have an appreciation for rock climbing but don't know the ins and outs of it, when it comes to setting a new route, are you, are you up there physically bolting as you go? What's the process to, to laying a new route? If you were bolting a route and not climbing it on traditional gear, they often used to do it ground up. We don't tend to do that anymore. First of all, because the bolts tended up in all the wrong places. Um, just because it's somewhere you feel like you need it when you're going ground up doesn't necessarily mean it's something somewhere that it should be for a repeat ascent. Um, it also tends to result in kind of worse quality bolts because if I'm abseiling in and I'm taking my time, I've got a podcast on my headphones um, and I'm just taking my time to equip a route, I can do it better. I can make sure that the holes are properly cleaned. I can make sure the glue is top quality, you know, and likewise, I can make sure the bolts are in the right positions, that the rope's going to run neatly. It's not going to cut on any edges. Um, and you can also sort of like, if you're going ground up, sometimes you end up kind of in no man's land where, you know, you may not be able to climb or perhaps you encounter a, a, um, a line of vegetation going across the cliff, which you're definitely not going to go ripping out. So what do you do? You're at an impasse. So if I come in from the top, I have time to assess all of this um, as I'm going down and just try and my sort of philosophy is that when I finish with the route in terms of equipping it and climbing it and, you know, tidying up the climbing area when I'm finished, my idea should, should be that it should be the best I can possibly make it, you know, and I mean, that's subjective, but I want to walk away knowing that that art perhaps is properly complete and I'm happy to put my name under it. 
you know, sign off on it and start trying to talk people into going and trying it. How many so, climbs do you need before you start, you know, spruiking it to others? Is it, is it just once and you're happy or do you need to kind of go through it a, a few times and just kind of, I guess, fine tune it before you start spreading the word? So sometimes like some of the climbs that we've put up, uh, you know, would just be one single route somewhere in the middle of nowhere. They seldom get repeated. And that's a part of the challenge is because especially dependent on how difficult it is, you know, it may be hard to kind of sell it to people, which it used to bother me that no one would come and do these climbs, but I, I don't really mind anymore. It's almost got a bit of a bragging point now. It's kind of like, yeah, my roots are so hardcore. No one's willing to do them. It could just be that they're not worth the effort, but I'm going to tell myself it's because I'm good. A big part of it is like, we've got some amazing photographers in the climate community, some who do it professionally, some who do it just for, for a passion. One of my best friends, Jared Anderson, he's a stunning photographer. And I'd probably say that he and a few others like, like Ben Sanford and, and Lucas Corotto are doing an excellent job of promoting my climbs, if only because these photos they produce make you want to go and climb them. You know, and I think that's one of the biggest selling points is I can tell you all day long how good it is. And I can, I can do the, the climber's interpretive dance where we're, we're showing off all the different moves you're doing. But when you see a photo, what does it say? You know, a, a picture tells a thousand words, you know, like, and that's exactly what it is, is to see a photo which kind of encapsulates the climb and the environment and just the outrageousness of it. Like that is the real selling point. Um, and, 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 you know, it is a stunning feeling to have people go and repeat your climbs, especially the harder ones or the less trafficked ones or less visited ones. You know, maybe they have a great experience. Maybe they don't. But either way, they've had an experience. And I guess like, you know, you're an author and, you know, you, you want to see how a reader responds to what you're right. Can you elicit emotions in them? It's a similar thing. Is even someone who's had a bad experience on one of my clients, I've still gotten a strong reaction out of them one way or another. And, you know, and that's, that's an awesome experience, like to kind of have had that profound experience on another human being and, and then them on me as well when I go and repeat their climbs. And do you want to leave a legacy, Paul? Is that part of it as well? You know, to say in 50 years, 100 years, that you know, your name is, is always going to be synonymous with, with these climbs around the Blue Mountains? I don't believe in the concept of legacy. We're going to start going down some sort of philosophical rabbit holes there. Um, but so for me, that idea, like a part of me kind of wants it. You like that idea of your name being known and maybe certain aspects ascribed to you after you've left. But at the same time, that kind of irritates me because I don't, don't believe in it. Do you know what I mean? Like if anything, I would like, if my roots could be enjoyed or disliked now, and I can have that feedback now, this idea of if someone went and removed all of my climbs the day I'm gone, wouldn't bother me. Because the reality is to me, the experiences for people and, and subsequently my like vicarious experiences, like sharing of their experiences, like I can only enjoy that now. So that's probably how I prefer to do it. Like, I, I feel like it's more, it's also about leaving a legacy and perhaps more just trying to in, inspire people to try the same types of climbs I'm doing or, or sit, try and see my vision, you know? Like uh, self-esteem is often reflected by people subscribing to your outlook. And if someone can subscribe to the, the crazy things that you do in a, as a climber or the particular climbs of particular places, but that is quite the, the esteem boost to have them kind of jumping on your bandwagon. And along those lines, success in climbing, it can be a little bit binary in terms of, you know, you, you make the ascent or you don't, you know, you, you set a new route or you don't. 
how do you define success when it comes to, to your rock climbing? Very arbitrary and complex set of rules, which trying to explain can be quite challenging. You know, in the same way trying to explain cricket is quite challenging to someone who's never heard of it before. It's a similar thing. We have a rather ridiculous set of rules, which are quite arbitrary, but for whatever reason, they've been codified as the rules for how you successfully succeed at a climb. And if you get from the bottom to the top, meeting those rules, you've, we would say, ticked the climb. You've, you've succeeded at it. And that's one measurement. That's that classic goal-orientated sort of measurement. Sometimes it's just, it really is just an experience. Like there's been climbs that I've not succeeded on that I don't feel like I would ever go back to, like to try and succeed moving forwards. I've had that experience. I don't need to have it again. Through Whether, whether I, I ticked it or not is a little bit secondary. So I guess you would say it almost depends on what style of climb you're doing. If you're at a sport crag, you know, with your latte, maybe your dog, your success is often measured by do you get to the top or not? Or, or I guess another way of looking at it would be do you help your mate, your friend get to the top or not? Like, you know, if you can be the support crew and get them to the top, hey, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coast on their victory as well. When you're out doing bigger climbs, adventure climbs in the Blue Mountains or elsewhere, it's, if, if it's particularly hard, there's every chance you won't succeed. And you have to go into it with that mentality that in reality, odds of a proper success is very unlikely. And so you have to kind of reframe your outlook and just accept the experience. You know, sometimes it'd be a good experience, sometimes it'd be a bad experience. But again, it's just, it's been an experience, you know. Has that always been your perspective, Paul, that it's just about the experience and living that moment? Uh, I would say a lot has changed over the years. Like, again, I think I am a goal-orientated person, you know, set a set of goals and just charge headlong at them. But a lot of things have kind of had to change over time for a number of different, different reasons. One of them, as I mentioned before, is I used to struggle with getting very frustrated that I wasn't this brilliant, legendary climber. And I just kind of had to accept that it's not just about walking with success, but it's about like the movement on the rock or the dance or whatever you want to call it. Like when people are stressed or frustrated or you know, distressed, people have different outlets. And for me, I can just go climbing and whether I succeed or fail, just that movement on the rock and just the insanity of what we're doing, the irrationality of it is an amazing release. And it's, it's been a journey to reach that understanding of why I climb as well um, and to just kind of bask in the moment more than, than only reveling in my successes and, and detesting my failures. Do you think it's a journey then that people have to go through that for whatever period of time to try and cover that? Or do you think if you, you know, if you go back to when you first started climbing, you kind of wish that you'd had that perspective from, from day dot? No, actually, no, I think it's been a good journey because it's only by the contrast of basically making mistakes that I can fully appreciate where I've arrived at. You know, that's what they always say is you don't have to look back on your past and just be proud of it, provided that you're proud of who you are now. And I think it's a bit like that. And it's the same with my experiences in climbing. And I would say for the most part, my experiences in life where I've, the amount of things you've done wrong or, or times where you've kind of almost punished yourself by choosing the wrong course through life or, or the wrong experiences. But as long as at the end you kind of got to somewhere that you want to be, yeah, they're all just bumps on the road. You know? And the reality as well um, is that the more I've cared less about success and failure in climbing, the more I've actually succeeded. I think I overthink things a lot I get into my head I have this whole thing where I often say to people that I don't usually feel nervous when I climb except when I think I can do it and I feel there's a lot riding on it and the problem is when I get to that mindset it's actually usually bad I usually climb much worse it's almost better when I don't care 
And it's just another day hanging out with my mates, trying a climb, maybe I succeed, maybe I don't, have a laugh when I fall off. And I find I'm relaxed into it. I climb better. I flow more, we might say. And at the same time, you know, if you fail, it doesn't get in your head, just never going to succeed. I'm terrible. You know, you don't have that pressure. You know, it's probably why I couldn't be an Olympic athlete, I imagine. I'd struggle with the pressure. <laughs> Are there certain things you can build into a day, you know, the day of a climb, the things you do in the morning, the things you do in the lead up to, to get yourself into that almost carefree headspace? So I've, I've got a house here in the Blue Mountains, but I live with my van a lot of the time by choice. And I, especially when I'm out climbing, I actually really do enjoy spending the night before in my van. I often have like the windows and the slider door open, just I know it sounds weird, but trying to be like more in touch with the environment. It's like, yeah, sure, I'm still in a bed, I'm still in a van, but like, you know, that, that window's open there and that door's open there and that moth is now flying around my head. And I love that, that experience of that really restful, deep sleep and getting up in the morning and I love kind of cooking on my little stove and I do some warm-ups as well, just like for my fingers and my shoulders. And it kind of depends what climb I'm doing. Sometimes music, certain types of music reflect certain types of climbs. Like I always say that a climb has a cadence to it. And I try and find the right cadence to get like stuck in my head, like a, what's that saying? Is it a, an earwig? What's an, ear, an earworm? An earworm, a song stuck in your head, I think it is. I try and get the right type of song stuck in my head for the day because that will reflect the cadence of the climb. Little things like that. I've got a few other friends who they, um, they get quite introspective when they climb, like they'll really sit down, they'll be really quiet, they'll be very humble, like almost like they're meditating. Um, one of them's got a particular song, um, which he, if he's serious about a climate, it's one song he listens to that for whatever reason gets him in the right mind space. So, I mean, everyone's got their own little tactics. And for me, I think the biggest part of it really is actually just being in the right environment. I feel like the, the environment around me kind of like calms me by osmosis or something. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. And Paul, you grew up in the Blue Mountains. What was the role of, of adventure in the great outdoors uh, in your childhood? Look, I, I'll be honest, I had a really good upbringing. Like I was quite a problematic child. Um, and I can look back on that and say that. My parents were brilliant though. Like they managed my challenges very well. And they were very keen on just outdoors. So my dad um, was a rescue officer for state emergency services. He now works doing vertical rescue. So people who get stuck on cliffs, fall down canyons, whatever he goes and rescues them um they do a lot of i hate to say like body recoveries and a lot of the sort of work that people don't want to do and so i kind of grew up not so much climbing but we did everything else like abseiling canyoning like weekends we're out bush in a tent um we did these trips around australia for months at a time through the deserts and you know in a four-wheel drive in a tent canvas tent um so that kind of learning how to live in the bush and i guess kind of familiarity with like, like ropes and, and bushcraft, like survival, like orienteering, navigation, all that sort of stuff was a big part of growing up. And even just, I guess, um, being aware of the hazards in the bush. Like I've seen plenty of snakes through all the bush bashing I do to get to climbing areas. I've never had any run-ins that I would call problematic. And I feel I'm probably more predisposed to have an encounter like that if I'm not out there with respect, like with respect for the environment. So all these things are very derivative of the upbringing from my parents here in the mountains. Alongside the life skills that you learned through, through those kind of amazing experiences, what was the role of, of education in school for you? I 
at time I thought I didn't like school, but the more I sort of reflected on, I know we say we look at everything with rose-tinted spectacles, but the more I sort of reflect on, I think, you know what, I actually did like school. Like I didn't find it very hard and, but I had a great set of teachers who kind of challenged me. So like, you know, my English teacher would see me sleeping on the desk and then, you know, outcomes brave new world in 1984 to read, you know, and similar things um, like in primary school, you know, and they, they would take us off to go to like, like, um, I can't remember the name, it was like a bush camp sort of thing. It's opposite the uh, scenic world. There's a, uh, I can't remember the name for it. It's like a set of cabins or something like that. And we go up there and we do these like trips, which are very much bushcraft centric, you know, and um, all those sorts of aspects, like having the right role models, especially within the education system, made a big difference. Like one of them is just, I had a teacher in year five who just recognized how much I loved writing and encouraged that. And as I said, I had an English teacher who recognized that I found the curriculum really easy. And rather than just letting me sleep while we did, I don't know, Julius Caesar or something, you know, he'd start throwing Brave New World, 1984, To Kill a Mockingbird, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, just kind of bombard me with these books. And he had me convinced that whether I passed or failed that year would be contingent on whether I read those books, which that's not how curriculum works, but he had me believing that. And so I read them and that made all the difference because it really, it really kind of defined my approach to, I mean, just language in general, like the written word, language, you know, the inquiring mind perhaps. Do you feel like there's a correlation, Paul, between your upbringing, which is all about exploration, adventure, and even that schooling experience, you know, you were challenged to, to think differently, to explore new literature. Do you think there's a correlation between that and your approach to setting new routes, climbing now, that you, you love it as an art form, you like looking and exploring. Do you think there's a correlation between the two? There is. Um, I think in part because, like, for example, with, with literature, so much of it has these, like, like, figurative artistic flourishes. Do you know what I mean? Like, you look at, like, a writer like Patrick O'Brien and every single sentence in his books is almost like poetry. Every single sentence is written with a flair. Like, you know, even a lot of books have like what I would call throwaway sentences. They only kind of exist to, to, to join two, two more important sentences together. Patrick O'Brien would find a way to make that insignificant sentence interesting, even if it came down to kind of playing with the written word a little bit and, you know, taking some like um, unconventional approaches. I feel like it's kind of the same thing is that when you're out climbing, you know, you could just, we use the term grid bolt. You could just grid bolt a line straight up a wall and say, and be proud because it's got a grade and, and you can name it and give it, you know, maybe people climb it or you can kind of see that as your artistic flourish and, you know, make the unconventional approach to, to kind of connect the more interesting parts of the climb together. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of what it feels like. There's this kind of, like, even in my root names that I'm naming them, I always try and have this kind of like a, an artistic sort of bent to all my root names as well. Like either, either commentary or like I had a root um, a while ago, which I named, um, it's called Incitatus for POTUS. So POTUS being president of the United States, Incitatus was Caligula's horse, which supposedly he made a consul of the Senate to kind of mock the Senate. So I'm saying like Caligula's horse for president, you know, kind of some commentary on uh, some of the recent American elections. And okay, maybe it's pretentious, but at the same time, I sort of feel like it's pretentious, but in kind of my artistic vein, perhaps. After school, Paul, you went on to join the army. What, what drew you into that decision? Um, <laughs> twofold. I went through scouts when I was, um, I went through scouts when I was younger. And to me, kind of the army looked like the next step 
like the more advanced hardcore version of the scouts i'd be honest there was a bit of patriotism in it as well like kind of growing up in the mountains like it was pretty as i'm sure you remember it was a pretty ochre community but the other thing as well i hate to say it is after so much school i didn't want to go and do more school so i i got into the universities i applied for i got all the courses i applied for i just did not want to go and do more years of study i wanted to go and have some adventures and i mean obviously i didn't didn't get deployed anywhere but to me in my head especially when you're 17 that just seemed like a cool way to have adventures and you know i don't regret i mean it's, it hasn't really had any influence um any ongoing influence in the rest of my life but i don't regret my time because i think that it helped me mature it kind of brought me out of my shell a bit like you might not know it to hear me babbling now but i was very quiet when i finished school didn't talk a lot and i didn't have a lot of confidence and i felt like the army kind of put me in this position where i either had to develop these things these skills and take charge and be a leader or fail and i was lucky enough that again with the right guidance that they kind of pushed me into what i would call success and you know working as a project manager and various other leadership roles i've taken over the years like 100 percent could not have done them without my time in the army and do you think i guess the relative regiment of, of the army in terms of the structure and the rules and everything do you think whilst you love the creativity and the flair and the artistic form, do you think you still benefited from having that structure around you? I struggled a lot with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, when I was a kid. And OCD is very much about structure and, and I used to call it the ritual, which is the way things had to be. And the army was just kind of like, because I, I was well and truly over those challenges by then. But for the army to have that structure and that regimen and, and you know, like your your clothes have to be folded to very particular measurements, you know, and your locker has to be organized you know, with the right amount of space between articles. Like for me, it was just like turning that OCD thing back on, you know? So for me, it was, it was kind of re-engaging with that organized part of my brain, which maybe, you know, I, I distanced myself from. And again, it's kind of back to a balance really, because the same thing, you know, when you're equipping a climbing route, you know, I might have 30 kilograms worth of gear with me. And if I forget any part of it, well, I might not be able to do it. So just kind of knowing you've got everything, having a plan for how you're going to attack it and all different steps, because sometimes you've got to wait for, for glue to dry before you can do something else. And all these sorts of things, I think, um, are emblematic of success, despite the fact that what you're doing when you're physically climbing or establishing route has that artistic component to it. I don't see that they're like mutually exclusive. What was your first introduction then to rock climbing, Paul, and, and how did that occur? So I, I was studying philosophy at the time and I, like for me, philosophy was really important to me, like trying to, you know, all those classic questions you have in life where we just treat things as axiomatic, but we don't really think about them. And I, I just wanted those answers and I was kind of studying it quite intently, very passionately. And I just went down this really dark rabbit hole, like very kind of nihilistic sort of mentality. And I had a flatmate at the time and he could sort of see that I wasn't doing great. And he just said, you know what, let's just go and do some fun activities. And we're just searching around on the internet and came across uh, the, the climbing center, which is like an indoor climbing gym at Penrith, operated by a friend of mine, um, Adam McLean. And he just said, oh, let's go and do that. We did it like once at high school. We should go and do it again. And we went around there and, and climbed and climbed terribly. And for him, it was a fun outing. For me, straight away, I knew there was something special about it. Like just straight away, it, it resonated with me and 
from then on, like I was trying to get to the gym two or three times a week. Like I didn't have climbing partners and I'd seen some people doing what we call traversing, which is where you just, you climb on all the walls, but down low just to get some climbing in without a partner. So I would go there three times a week and traverse because I didn't know anyone. Um, and the actual gym owner, Adam, just started talking to some of the regulars there. And he's like, hey, you guys are always complaining that there aren't enough climbers who are psyched. Like this, this kid, he's coming in here, you know, three times a week and traversing and just on his own because he doesn't really know anyone. Like if you want a minion, <laughs> if you want someone to join you on these adventures, I reckon he'd make a good minion. And, you know, hopefully they don't regret it because they, uh, they took him up on that offer. <laughs> and that love for it, that, that spark that it uncovered, can you pinpoint it to a particular part? Was it the physical exertion? Was it overcoming a challenge? Can, yeah, what was it that you loved about rock climbing in that, those early days? I think it started with the, the physicality of it. And, like, I've always been a runner. Like, I, I didn't even realise I had an upper body until I got into climbing, really. And, you know, the physicality of trying to learn and develop this new skill set. Like, I'm sure that was a part of it. And having, like, the motivation to do so. Like, it's easy to go and do chin-ups. But then, like, why are you motivated to do it? But if, hey, doing chin-ups can help me climb better, I guess I'll do some chin-ups. But then even just the absurdity of it back then. And, like, what are you doing? You're just, just climbing and you're being kind of acrobatic and you're hanging on edges, like, literally with your fingernails. And I suppose a lot of it's a puzzle. Early on, I liked climbing lower angle climbs so less than overhanging vertical or about a lot of the time the holds are very small and the feet are very um almost non-existent so to move between these holds it's, it's this interesting kind of it's about balance it's about like problem solving like kind of looking at it and being like okay if i shift my weight there what's that going to do so there's kind of that like almost like an intellectual aspect to it as well you know and that's that's when you like start at the gym and that's before you go outdoors and you bring in all the extra components and extra benefits that come from climbing outdoors. And how long was the transition, Paul, from your, your introduction to climbing in the gym to, to taking that leap and, and going you know, for your first outdoor climb? I don't think it was super long, maybe only three or four months. And again, not knowing anyone, I just went and I went to um, the Australian School of Mountaineering, which is at um, Katoomba, um, Main Street of Katoomba. They share a store with Paddy Pallon. And I went to them and they just took me on like learn to climb courses outdoors, you know, just pay them some money and they took me out. And I again, had some great guides who were very psyched and motivated individuals and like helpfully recognized, I think that maybe I was a little bit more committed than some of the other people. Like people go and try that for fun and that, that's awesome, full respect. And maybe they saw that like there was like a more of a staying like a drive to stick around for me than just have that one experience. And I ended up doing a few courses with them, including like learning some more sort of advanced rope craft skills on subsequent courses. And then of course, you know, the minute that I feel qualified, I, you know, buy a rope and buy some gear and race off to do it on my own and maybe take a fall and maybe break my heel. But hey, it didn't stop me. I just went climbing with a broken heel. <laughs> Would you recommend that to, to anyone listening to the podcast? You know, if, if they're interested in rock climbing or any kind of adventure sport, to to go out there and get that introductory training, you know, to really nail the fundamentals before you do go out there on your own? I, I actually, I mean, I wouldn't recommend the broken heel, but I would definitely actually do recommend the, um, the training courses. I mean, I know some people don't like kind of how stiff and formal it can be. I, I think that everything's about like forming like a foundation, a strong foundation of skills, which maybe they're regimented, maybe they're a bit beige, but like with that foundation, like 
properly consolidated, then you can branch off and start kind of adding your own flair to it. Then you can kind of start choosing what to, what to fully adopt and what to disregard. Hopefully, you know, with, with, from a, a fairly, from a point of rationality. But again, you can, you can, as long as you've got that basis, you can make informed decisions about where you want to go from there. And, you know, if someone else who's another experienced climber comes and has some different advice for you, you can take that on board. But again, you're comparing it to that foundation. And if it doesn't, if what they're saying doesn't sit well with you, well, you, you know where you stay. Whereas if you've just been taught like my subjective way of doing things or your subjective way of doing things, essentially all you're learning is my bad habits and, and hopefully my good ones as well, but definitely some bad habits in there. So even when I take people out now to teach them to climb or I don't teach people to climb so much anymore, but I, I try and upskill their climbing so they can do more advanced and more complex things. I will often quite specifically differentiate from the correct way of doing something versus my habits. And sometimes I'll even acknowledge if the way I do things is probably not considered right. And I'll say, but this is how you should be doing it. And then try and leave it up to them to make an informed decision. Because I definitely don't want to pretend that the way I do things is, is the perfect way. It's subjective. Um, as I said, it's probably full of bad habits. But it's bad habits or habits in general that are formed as a result of 15 years of climbing relentlessly. You know, and other, other than that first instant, having had no real accidents. So <laughs> you talked about uh, being committed there early on and, and it was recognised from the, the School of Mountaineering. Was there a moment where you realised internally that, that you were good at this rock climbing and that was something you wanted to pursue a bit further? Just straight away, just this idea of going from week to week with not climbing suddenly just seemed like, like abhorrent. I just could not stand this idea of not getting out of my weekends. And for me, climbing the weekends meant climbing both Saturday and Sunday, which, you know, people have families, they have lives, they have other interests. And I would be that annoying guy harassing them, like, come on, come out tomorrow. Your daughter, nah, nah, she'll be following. She can come, she can sit at the cliff and watch us climb. I'm like, come on, it'll be okay. Just very quickly. And I don't know whether that was, you know, right time, right place sort of thing. You know, maybe it came about at a time where I needed something like that. And climbing just kind of slotted into you know, help me overcome that dark period of my life. Maybe it was just that sort of simple coincidence or maybe it's like reflective of my own greater interests, you know, my own sort of like cognitive ideals perhaps. I don't know, but it was just all encompassing. Like my nickname is in the climate community is frothy and they say that like, like I'm rabid, you know, like, like rabies, um, just always frothing, rabid for more climbing, just talk about it relentlessly. Um, dream about it, write about it. It just doesn't stop. And it didn't stop. You know, even back then it didn't stop. And that desire for the climb ports taking you on some overseas adventures, you know, Russia, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan. What has the overseas experience of climbing been like for you versus climbing locally in the Blue Mountains? So my first ever overseas trip was to Russia, um, which was quite a confronting experience. But, it, you know, Russia as a country, it's got some challenges. The people are generally quite nice, but as a collective country in terms of its government and the way things are managed, there's some challenges there. But the climbers, even the Russian climbers, were really nice, really friendly. They found my terrible Russian hilarious um, and, and were just very accommodating. Like I'd only been there for a short period of time and already people invited me to join them on these alpine adventures on the Georgian border and stuff like that. And, and I mean, Kyrgyzstan was... A similar thing it was actually that same team of Russians who I'd met during my trip to Russia. It was actually them 
invited me to come on this, this trip doing a winter ascent of a peak in, in Kyrgyzstan uh, above 7,000 meters, you know, and, and I feel like there's not many cultures on earth, which perhaps are so starkly different to our own that there's every reason for us not to get along. And I mean, obviously there's, there's various non-Westernized countries, but somewhere like, like the Russians and, and Eastern Europeans, a lot of us kind of see them as this, this, you know, post-Soviet sort of anachronism, but like through the language of climbing, through this common interest, like they might as well have been Australians just with funny accents. Um, and, you know, everywhere else I've been, you know, France, Spain, the UK, um, America a couple of times, like everyone, everywhere you go, the minute you get into the climate community there, they're brilliant. Like the, I've met someone at a cliff that day and I'm having, now I'm having dinner with their family and they're offering to let me crash in their downstairs basement or whatever. I don't even know who I am. Just some random Australian dude speaking terrible French. Um, but that's just it is that, that commonality, that common interest just transcends whatever cultural barriers we might have, or even, even just like historical grievances. Um, and just everyone's your best mate. And likewise, when people come over here, like I've, you know, I've got a spare room in my house here, I put them up here. Um, I feel like I'd be a bit of a hypocrite to uh, enjoy everyone else's hospitality and not offer my own, you know. You mentioned there the, the high altitude climbing, 7,000 metres. How do you prepare differently for something like that? Obviously, it's quite a contrast even to where we are in the mountains. Is there a different approach to that, uh, both in your physical and mental preparation? It's rather tricky given that, what is it, 1,100 metres or something is the high point of the Blue Mountains, I think. So, you know, it's not particularly high. And even, even Kosciuszko is 2,500 or something. Because we aren't really in a position to train the physical altitude, what essentially altitude does and altitude, like the effects it has on you is to me, it makes every activity substantially harder. So if you go down to the giant staircase at Katoomba, stand at the bottom and, and pick up, I don't know, fill your pack up with 30 kilograms of water and then walk back up that staircase and just how that feels, you know, how much harder it is to walk back up there with 30 kilograms of water in your pack rather than, you know, with no weight at all. At a high enough altitude, that is ordinary walking doesn't matter that you may not have 30 kilograms that's what it starts to feel like and it's because that that stress on your lungs and the headaches you'll get from it all these sorts of things it's just everything done much harder so my outlook is basically to be so fit from a cardio perspective that i can go and grab that 30 kilograms of water and can gun my way up the giant staircase and feel as easy as if i wasn't carrying anything at all so like because obviously i work i work in the city i often have to do this stuff at night so I used to do laps of um, uh, Wentworth Pass where it went with falls. So I'd, I'd kind of jog my way down the bottom. I'd literally fill up a pack full of water, of, um, water and then jog my way back up, um, up the, the slack stairs, up across the top of Wentworth Falls itself. And I'd just do laps of that in the dark with a headlamp, you know, three, four times a week. And it was just this idea that I don't want my physical fitness to be even a factor. I shouldn't even need to think about it. And then the only things which will stop me will be the weather, which unfortunately that's always a problem at high altitude. Or at the end of the day, some people just aren't predisposed to go to high altitude. Like some people physiologically have limitations. Like I, I actually struggle a lot with sinus problems I found out the hard way, which made things more difficult but not impossible. So to me it was every element that I can control before going to somewhere like Kyrgyzstan, I will control. Do you enjoy the physical pain 
obviously there's a purpose behind it because you want to get yourself to, to your peak physical position. Do you enjoy the pain that comes with both the training but then the actual adventure itself? I'm in partners. Basically said that I am that I am good at suffering, but I'm terrible at anticipatory suffering. So what he means by that is I actually really dread knowing how much something is going to hurt, how horrible it's going to be beforehand. And I, I will lose sleep over it. Like maybe I'll even almost talk myself out of it. Um, but then when I'm physically in the event, it's kind of just like it's business time. You know, let's just get going. Let's just get it done. Let's get it done quickly so we can go back to the pub and have a drink. You know, like that's sort of my outlook. But in the lead up to it, I often dread how much it's going to hurt, how it's going to feel. Like I almost am waiting for someone to talk me out of it. I mean, no one ever seems to, but, you know, I feel like if, if you know, you had your little devil on your shoulder saying, you know what, you should just go home and play computer games. Like, I don't know, maybe I'd take them up on it. <laughs> Touching on your overseas adventures, is there a particular climb that has become a favourite or a most iconic climb for you? We've had lots of cool adventures. I mean, the one which, if you're going to talk about it, that people, especially non-climbers, have heard of is that five or six years ago, I went and climbed, um, we climbed the nose route on uh, El Capitan in Yosemite Valley. So me and my climbing partner, Stephen, did. Um, we did it in two days and we freed, well, I freed about 90% of what I climbed. So when we talk about freeing, the climb like that has lots of very, very hard sections on it where only the best of the best can climb it. There's been less than 10 people in the world have ever climbed all of it. And then it, obviously the different sections of different pitches kind of scale down in difficulty, some easy, some hard, whatever. A lot of climbers, even better climbers than myself, go there and don't necessarily succeed at the amount that I did. And I'm kind of proud of that because I know that I had to sort of transcend my abilities a little bit to do that. And it is, you know, it is possibly the most iconic climb in the world from a climbing perspective. I mean, You've, maybe you've seen the Dormor film with, with Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen. Maybe you've seen Free Solo with Alex Honnold. They're on different routes, but they're still on the same bit of rock, you know, El Capitan. Um, and the nose route was the first route ever put up on El Capitan. And it is a stunning bit of terrain. And it's, I think the actual climbing distance is 1,100 metres, but I think the actual height of El Capitan is about 900 metres, which is, you know, 900 metre vertical face or sheer face is kind of unfathomable to us in Australia. We actually don't have anything that high here where you just have a sheer drop. And, you know, I think we did it efficiently. We free climbed a lot more than we, we aided, than we, um, I don't know, I hate to use the word cheated, but that's kind of what it is if you're a free climber and you have to pull on a bit of gear because it's too hard. It's kind of like cheating. We freed, we freed most of it. And I was very proud of that. Even if it's, you know, there's other things that you could say are also really cool. But for me, that just felt like, one of these things that as a new climber you kind of dream of and but never really believe you'll do. And, yeah, me and my client partner, Stephen, who lives up at Katoomba, um, we just went there and had this amazing trip to Yosemite for six weeks and we just met literally all of our objectives. And we thought we were being too ambitious. So I said, I know I'm boasting now, aren't I? But <laughs> it was an amazing experience. Did the size of the occasion and the, the aura of, of Yosemite, did that? overwhelm you at any point because as you said you know the dorm wall free solo these things have really i guess highlighted the history and tradition that's associated with the sport in that area were, were you blown away by the occasion at any point definitely yeah absolutely humble when i'm tackling something big and i like to think that that humbleness translates to like preparedness 
because you know you're not letting your, your hubris get the better of you and we we prepared a lot before we went there because we kind of expected to be terrible like it's that that weight of history that that burden of all these legendary climbers and just the scale of what you're about to tackle we just don't have anything that big in australia and we we practiced a lot like even some you know, we definitely had a few like sort of uh, raised eyebrows at some of our antics at various climbing areas while we're out there jumaring up and down fixed ropes, trying to get faster at it, more efficient at it, or setting up portal edges on the sides of cliffs up here in the blueies. And so much of that was just because we kind of knew what we're up against. And then when you sort of get there, it's even more humbling. Like you take, you know, you approach everything very cautiously, very tentatively, even the relatively easy grades. Like I actually fell off a really, 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 really easy climb there on like my second day which was uh, even more humbling <laughs> and I'm not sure many people fall off it, but I did. So, you know, every single time you go any climb, irrespective of grades, you are kind of very tentative, I think, you know, you sort of test the waters a little bit. You don't go in gung ho and you just respect the fact that the guys who put these climbs up are legends and, you know, I'm just, you know, Bluey's boy, you know, come up there to suss it out. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. Paul, you recently developed a a neurological eye condition that has impacted your vision in a number of different ways. At what point did you realise that something wasn't quite right? I've, I've technically had this condition my whole life but never diagnosed, but I just, you know, break out Dr. Google and you figure out what it is. I've had it my whole life and it's always been annoying, but never impairing perhaps. And back at, I think it was either the end of June, I think it was about the end of June and I was under the most stress of my entire life. And I'll be honest, COVID and lockdowns were not helping. And I went to sleep with a weird migraine and literally woke up the next day and my, my eyes don't focus properly anymore. And at first I thought it was just eye strain, burnout, I've been doing a lot of study at the same time and kind of living on a computer. I just thought I needed a break. Maybe I need new glasses, but then nothing made any difference. I just couldn't properly focus my eyes anymore. And so obviously you go the, go the journey through the medical system, trying to sort of rule out the most likely things, eventually ruled out a physical problem with my eyes, which you would call like an ophthalmological disorder. And they realize it has to either be psychological or neurological. And again, going down the, psychological route we kind of more or less narrowed it down to being a neurological disorder essentially it's to do with the way my brain processes vision and what it is is every time if you look at anything in the world around you there's actually lots of mistakes in what your eyes see your brain is kind of smart enough that it filters out those mistakes which is why you think you see a smooth smooth clear image my problem is for whatever reason, over time, my brain's gotten worse and worse at filtering out those mistakes. So I see all the wrong data in my vision. And it's, you might say it's distracting to my eyes. They have trouble looking through it, which is why they can't properly focus on anything anymore. Um, so it's kind of like, imagine if you're someone who needs glasses, but just doesn't have them. And that's sort of what it's kind of like all the time, irrespective of whether I have glasses or not. So for me, like I, I describe it as like a veneer of static across my vision. And I've had it since I was about 15, I think, because when I first noticed it, but back then it didn't have a name. The ophthalmologist that I talked to 
kind of thought I might, I was either making it up or maybe it was a type of migraine, like a persistent migraine. And because it was just annoying, it wasn't actually inhibiting. I just put up with it. And then over the years, it has gotten worse. And I've noticed that. And eventually, you know, they, they, they actually named a syndrome, which it pertains to. But again, I never bothered to get diagnosed because it's just, just always there. It's annoying, but whatever. And it's only now that it's gotten so much worse that it, it impairs aspects of how I, my day-to-day life, how I perform my day-to-day life, you know, reading, writing, much more challenging now that I've obviously went right down the rabbit hole of kind of trying to learn what it is and eventually ended up speaking to a, a neuro-ophthalmologist, which is kind of like the end point as far as this type of problem is concerned. And we finally established a diagnosis. What impact has it had on your mental well-being to, to have the things that you spoke about, your reading, your writing, your climbing and the love for the outdoors? Has, has there been a specific impact on your mental well-being, do you feel? Especially early on. Um, I, I, I crashed really, really badly early on, um, especially when I kind of realized that it has made reading and writing so much harder. I can still do it, but it's very draining now. And again, it's like someone who should have glasses, but doesn't. So, you know, anyone who's ever had that experience, you know, knows what it feels like under the eye strain, the headaches, the tiredness. Um, and during COVID, um, in particular, we're all locked down. We're not kind of in immediate contact from our sort of support groups, getting in to see mental health professionals is, is more difficult because let's face it, everyone was struggling during our lockdowns from a mental health perspective. And I'll be honest, like maybe I was a little bit gung-ho in my outlook. Like I try and cultivate kind of like a bit of a, a mentally resilient sort of toughness to the point where I don't feel like I should need external help. I sort of thought that was me, but i tell you what, when this started happening, it didn't take long before all of that came crashing down. You know, this, this house of cards, which I, call my toughness just fell over and i was in a really really bad spot for a very long time like day after day like when they talk about you know how are you on a scale of one to ten and i was like a one out of ten for weeks day after day not sleeping and i just got this point where like i realized i had to kind of humble myself once again and try and speak to people because like i wasn't able to deal with on my own i obviously wasn't like i I still kind of hate to admit that now but i clearly wasn't capable of dealing with on my own and i had to go and find people to help me and that was mental health professionals and especially like family but especially friends climate community when i started talking about it um and words sort of got out amongst the greater community people started reaching out to me from all directions even some very surprising directions like even people who i wouldn't necessarily think of as my friends but who i've met over the years and they'd they'd be calling me up just to have a chat offering support like had some friends come a long way just to visit just purely to try and help me get out of this rut i guess you might say and you know it's been a journey since then we're now at the end of the year which is a little bit crazy because honestly when when this first happened and and i was trying to make appointments and i remember being told oh you weren't getting to see a neuro ophthalmologist until the end of october and i honestly remember thinking there's no way I can survive until the end of October. And, you know, I guess funnily enough, between, between the right people, the right community, the right support network, and just kind of being encouraged, maybe bullied a little bit to get back into climbing, like rather than sort of wallowing in pity, like get out and climb, man. It's what you do. Yeah, it's a bit trickier now, but you're still physically quite strong. You know, you, you move well on the rock, like just adapt. It's what you do. It's your happy place. And sure enough, when I stopped kind of lying in bed and feeling sorry for myself, 
and with the right prompting from all the people around me, it got back climbing. Like it's amazing despite knowing this is permanent and that it has not a spectacular prognosis, like a long-term prognosis, it's amazing how much I forget about it, that it's not just this, this dark cloud hanging over my head day after day, you know, in this uncertain future. It's kind of relegated to the background a bit because I'm just out climbing. I'm with my mates. Maybe they're, they're supporting me. Maybe I'm supporting them. I'm in these amazing locations, you know, just with, with just these vistas, which few people in the world have ever seen, even few people in the Blue Mountains have seen some of the amazing things that we've seen or the flora and fauna that you've uncovered. Like I remember talking to a friend of mine who's a botanist and he was talking about this particularly rare plant in the Blue Mountains, Isofrogan flicari, and he was just talking about the fact that they've only ever found 133 um, individual plants. And I could happily say to him, well, the cliffs that I go to, I, could, I know probably 100 plants on one cliff. And it's because you know, unless you're abseiling 100 metres into no man's land, you won't see these plants because they live in that sort of environment. And same with all, you know, the birds and whatever. It's just all these sorts of things. It's amazing. Like that it can really help you claw your way back out of a dark hole. And even, you know, obviously November was mental health month. And even just sort of, I, I, made, I made some posts and had some commentary and some discussion very publicly about my own challenges. And I guess the fact that I had to sort of reframe my perspective a little bit from gung-ho, don't need help, you know, don't want to show weakness, had to reframe it and accept all of those things. I had to accept, you know what, I may only be firing on three cylinders rather than six, but I can still do some pretty rad things and I can still be happy and I fundamentally have people my community, both climbing and non-climbing, even my work colleagues, I have all of them to actually thank for that because, as I said before, I literally was not getting out of that hole on my own. You know, and I, I actually hate to think, you know, how deep it could have gone, if I'm honest. Well, firstly, thanks for, for sharing that powerful story because as you've experienced it, the more we do talk about it, you know, the better people will be, you know. What, what advice would you have for someone who is in a really dark, place what's the first thing they should do to start to to just climb out because we know it doesn't happen straight away and it takes time what is the advice you would pass on the obvious advice everyone always says is you've got to talk to someone but i think it's a little bit more complex than that the thing is in your friend network you will have friends that suit different archetypes different dispositions there will be a friend in that group maybe it's not always a person you would go to by default maybe it's not your family member there will be someone in that group who will be more what's the word like like more predisposed to understand what you're going through like you know sometimes it's, it's not your family so i hate to say sometimes they don't quite get where you're coming from but i feel like every kind of support group circle of friends that you kind of build up around you they kind of satisfy certain aspects of who you are and who you need surrounding you they, they reflect all the different elements of your personality both good and bad and if you really stop and think about it and you can feel you're in a dark place, think about what it is that is causing that. Think about where you are in your own mind. And I guarantee there'll be at least one person in that group who's the right person to talk to about that because the right words from the right person at the right time makes all the difference. And as much as it's great to have empathy from people surrounding you and, you know, offering a shoulder to, 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 to cry on if that's what you need, sometimes that's not what you need to get out of that, that 
black hole. You know, sometimes it's the right words. And there will be someone in your group, in your circle, who will be that person. And I, I genuinely believe that because when I think of all the people around me and I think of all the very diverse personalities and, and backgrounds and demographics, I can think now, especially now that I've been through all of this, of people who are the right people to turn to for various different things that could happen. So I guess, you know, you'll have someone there. It just may not always be the most obvious person is what I'm trying to say. You referenced earlier on in our chat that in the early days, climbing was an outlet for you. It was, it was a bit of an escape, a way just to kind of let the emotions go and, and hit reset. It's obviously taken on greater meaning now as an outlet for you in, in more recent months. How has your perspective of rock climbing and the community of rock climbing changed? I've had some runnings with certain individuals over the years. I like to think nothing too hostile. And even those who kind of irritate me or have irritated me in the past, like I sort of feel like I kind of love to hate them because, you know, as we say, like hate and love are actually very similar emotions. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe, maybe they're frustrating me, but hey, that's a strong emotion I'm getting from it. But what I've sort of realized is even some of the people I might have put in that category, people I didn't particularly like, they've, they've had the depth of character to transcend our issues and reach out to me, you know, and, and that is just mind blowing. Like, I, I'll be honest, like maybe I'm a pretty, I've been a pretty cynical kind of pessimistic person historically. Like maybe I haven't had a lot of great things to say about like the, the nature of, of the human character, but I've, I've very much been proven wrong. Like, and I'll readily admit that is I feel like I've been, I feel like I keep using this word humble, but that's what it feels like. I've been so humbled by this and not in a bad way. And some of the lessons I've learned from this whole experience are kind of lessons that I'm glad I've learned. Like, it's a shame that it's had to come in this particular format, you know, and with the, the prognosis I'm facing. But again, they're still very valuable lessons and lessons that I probably would never have learned, but for something like this. And the climbing community, I guess, because they are probably my closest sort of circle of friends on a day-to-day -day basis, like they have just blown me away with their kindness and their support. And it's really highlighted to me, even on days where I don't feel like climbing, sometimes, you know, I have good weeks and I have bad weeks, even now. Sometimes I just don't feel like climbing. But I will still go out and I'll belay my friends. I will support them on their climb. Because even just being that person who's there for them is, has been an amazingly rewarding experience. And, and I, that, that, again, is something which has changed. Like that whole idea that not everything has to be so like egocentric, so selfish, like that I can actually derive pleasure from helping someone else achieve their objectives and just sit back and enjoy that and still walk away with a great day. Like these are all things that have really changed because of this. Um, and I think probably intrinsically tied to the fact that I'm making good progress with my mental health and moving onwards and finding a new path through life with these new, we're accepting these new challenges as going to be as, as a part of it. Writing is another hugely important outlet for you, Paul. And last year you published a book called the shadow chases, which discusses kind of the cognitive meaning of life. Um, and you've got another book in the works. What was your inspiration behind that first book? From when I started studying philosophy and, you know, you start sort of putting certain like perspectives together, certain like outlooks together and you start kind of joining the various dots. And to me, if you're going to have, if you're going to try and posit a position 
in society, in politics, whatever, it has to be all encompassing. So, you know, from a metaphysical level, philosophical, ideological, political, ideological, so sociological, and, and I guess psycho psychological as well, all of these different aspects have to all be unified because otherwise you're, you're either a hypocrite, sorry to say it, or you're kind of creating a, like you're kind of creating a, um, what's the word? Kind of creating a situation where like you can't actually achieve all you're trying to achieve. Like things become mutually exclusive, like from your different perspectives. Everything's got to be capable of functioning together. And so from when, it's, when I started studying philosophy and just continued, continued investigating this sort of stuff and learning about stuff and researching and reading, all these sorts of elements started to come together. And tying with psychology, like, for example, like I, I believe that like, you know, the, the cognitive aspects of what we are as self-aware creatures is kind of like the highest thing we can do. Like that, that fully embracing like our, our self-awareness and our cognizance is the closest you could say to an ideal for us. And that someone who's follows that, that pursuit in life doesn't usually believe in a meaning of life by the traditional terms. So traditional terms, we start thinking of some sort of spiritual aspect, like that there's a, a purpose, a greater purpose for us as a species. Someone who's trying to kind of truly celebrate cognizance doesn't really believe in such a thing. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a meaning of life by another definition. And to me, that is this whole exploration of the, the, the cognizant meaning of life. Like what is your perfect purpose for you as an individual, which I guess reflects the unique makeup of, of who you are as an individual, like your, your, your neurological network, like same reason why, you know, you might love a song that I absolutely hate. A big part of that is that your particular neurological makeup is predisposed to enjoy whatever it is in that song. Theoretically, but it's probably unlikely, there's a song out there for you, which is the perfect song. It's very unlikely that it exists, but it could be there. Same thing for a path through life. Theoretically, there is the perfect path for you, the truly self-actualized path for you through life. Again, the odds of finding it are non-existent. But at the end of the day, the closer you get to finding it, the happier you're going to be in life. And that's, that's kind of what this book explores, like the, all those little components, how society can encourage its people to, or its members in pursuit of such a thing, like its, its benefits to society, its costs to society because there, there are negatives as well. Um, and that's part of what the book actually does is it also kind of takes this notion too far deliberately and it, it doesn't end up well in the same way that to me, any type of extremist sort of approach is going to end badly one way or another. And yeah, just kind of, I guess, explains the sort of the reasoning for it from like a psychological perspective and, and kind of the steps one can take to try and reverse engineer like the societal, societally driven empirical learning, like the things you're taught in society, the way that society shapes you, you kind of reverse engineering that to try and find like the aspects of you that sort of lurk beneath these influences. So I don't know, probably, probably a bit heavy talking all about all that sort of stuff. And how did you feel, Paul, putting yourself out there, you know, firstly to write the book, but then to publish it and put it out there? How did you feel? Were, were, you, were you nervous? Were you excited? What, what emotion would you associate with that? I was definitely nervous. Um, and, and look, even now I look back on it and there's some things in that book that I would love to go back and readdress. Maybe I will one day. Because some elements I've kind of realised were the classic hallmarks of a, a first time published writer like you know you make lots of mistakes and I knew there would be things in there which weren't right and that I hadn't picked them up and then my editor hadn't picked editors hadn't picked them up um so I was very nervous also because 
you know, if you're writing a book, if you're writing a book is just a fun fictional story, you know, as long as it's still fun, the characters are great, you're probably going to get positive reviews. When you're writing something which is going to address like higher notions, like ideology, you're also going to get critics from the academic side of, of readers. So not only does may the book itself, the fictional aspects, the characters, whatever, may they be fun or not fun, you're going to get people criticising your outlook, your thoughts. Maybe they can find logical fallacies. Uh, and, and actually, to be honest, there has been some feedback where there's been some things that I should have definitely should have worded differently. I've kind of left myself open for criticism. And it, it's been good feedback, actually, because some of these individuals are right, too. Um, there's also some scenes where, by way of contrast, I kind of included some sections in there which kind of invite the possibility for people to misconstrue aspects about me as the writer. Because as, as you know, like if you're writing something and you're conveying certain things, though they may not necessarily reflect your views, often a reader will associate them with your views. And I was very nervous that the people who know me in real life might see some of these things and associate them with me. And again, like, funnily enough, it was support from the right type of people around me who just sort of said, like, you know, are you passionate about the inclusion of this thing? Is it necessary? And, and it was, and it still is by my reckoning then just do it because anyone who really knows you and actually anyone who really gets the book is in the, the true target audience, they will understand where you're coming from. And the only people who will misconstrue are those who don't really understand you as a person or those who don't really understand the book. And again, the right words from the right people at the right time, because that's what that was. That was that final kind of push to overcome the hurdle. Paul, do you take the time to really pause and reflect on to your on your journey to this point, you know, you've, you've had some incredible hires, but you've had some really challenging times as well. Is looking back in the rearview mirror a regular practice for you? I do. Again, like allowing two things is like, you know, the, the rose-tinted spectacles, as we said, sometimes you look back and think things are great, but also allowing the fact that, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And I'll look back and I'm like, oh, that was a really dumb decision you made there. Why, why did you pick that course? Why did you piss off that person? But at the end of the day, sort of like I was saying before, you know, everything's a journey and all the different components, good and bad, are the components that make up who you are now. And had you not had those experiences, had you not had those contrasts, you'll be a different person. Would you be a better person? That's hard to say. But all you can say for certain is who you are now because that's the only thing we know. Anything else is pure speculation. So if you are happy with who you are now or proud of who you are now, and, you know, depending on what value you place in others' opinions, do you think that the people around you are happy to have known you, that you enriched their lives in one way or another? If these things, with where you are now, if you can say yes to these things, it really doesn't matter what choices you've made or didn't make because, you know, the outcome of those would just be pure speculation. But all you can say is that you're content right now. So for me, I'll reflect on these things analytically and say, you know what, this negative experience shaped me in this way. But at the same time, like I'm not going to get bogged down with regret over these mistakes because at the end of the day, who knows where the alternate path would have taken me. Along the same lines, Paul, do you believe in life that we find ourselves or that we create ourselves as people? And I mean, what I mean by that is, do you think that the path is laid out for us and we just live it? Or that every decision we make every day shapes where we end up? It's some interesting psychological aspects to that, which uh, is another kind of deep rabbit hole to go down. But um, I guess it's kind of a little bit of both. 
in my opinion. Like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of debate about do we actually make decisions or not. A big part of it is because the experiences we've already had have already predisposed us to an outcome. So choice is an illusion. But look, if we, if we, you know, if we kind of push that sort of pretentiousness off to one side and we try and treat the real world as the real world, I actually think both because I think that, you know, the environment you move through, you kind of, we have to kind of a bit like, you know, like going down a river or something like that, you know, you kind of have to just follow the course of the river. But, you know, the river might be 10 metres wide. You've got a bit of wriggle room, wriggle room through which to negotiate that river. And it's a bit like that is, you know, life, society, you know, our environment, global politics, COVID, whatever, you know, our wellness, all these sorts of things. That is, that, that, that is the river, you know, and what we have is our wriggle room within the river to kind of decide which sort of particular path we take down it. And those to me are the decisions we make. The decisions we make reflect whether in the middle of the river or off to the right-hand side, you know, we're going through that eddy current over there, you know, that undertow over there. So I, th I think both very much shape who you are. You know, we, we, we perform within a set of boundaries and we perform hopefully to the best of our abilities. And Paul, before we do finish up, what's the best way for people to check out both your writing work, but to check out some of the amazing climbs that you've been on? I have a blog. It's called uh, The Climbing Obscurist. Hasn't got a lot of my most recent stuff, but it's got a lot of like, we're talking about climbing on El Capitan and in Yosemite, that stuff's on there. Like, I'm, I guess I'm on like Facebook. Um, and, and kind of the greater, if you're interested in rock climbing, like there's a, a Blue Mountains rock climbing Facebook group, whatever. If you have questions, you're looking for people to teach you, whatever, you'll find stuff on there. And likewise, we've got to link you up with just, just all the different clients in the Blue Mountains. Um, you know, that's, that's probably the best sort of social aspects to it, Instagram, whatever. That's great. Well, Paul, thank you very much for sharing your, your inspiring and powerful story on the Passion and Perspective podcast. Wishing you all the best. I look great. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I always like talking about myself. So, you know, <laughs> thanks very much for your time, mate. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast. The Passion and Perspective podcast is made in loving memory of Katie Margaret Lees who truly lived with passion and perspective.